What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to My Social Life. This is the podcast where you can hear the real stories behind the people on social media. I'm your host, Jacob Kelly. As always, today's podcast is powered by TrueFan. Before we get into today's conversation with Noah Maraby, there's a couple things that we need to go over first. Number one, if you enjoyed today's podcast, please consider leaving a rating and a review. The more positive ratings and reviews we get, the more it helps new people find the show and it really helps to grow the community that we're developing here. And if you're one of those people that have recently found the podcast, welcome. I'm very excited to have you here. Make sure you subscribe, stay tuned for future episodes. I put up brand new interviews every single Monday and takeaways episodes every single Thursday. And last but not least, if you enjoyed today's podcast, please consider sharing it to your Instagram story. Tag myself at the Jacob Kelly and know it at Noah Maraby. And I'll feature you on my account and send you a message as well. And now without further ado, let's get to my conversation with Noah Maraby. What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to My Social Life. This is the podcast where you can hear the real stories behind the people on social media. I'm your host, Jacob Kelly. As always, today's podcast is powered by TrueFan. And today we are joined by Noah Maraby. And Noah is an award-winning speaker, best-selling author, and online course creator. Noah has taught over 117,000 students on Udemy alone. And he teaches his students about productivity, personal development, psychology, and behaviorism. This is Noah's second time on My Social Life. He previously appeared in episode number 41. So if you want to learn more about Noah's beginning in course creation marketing, I highly recommend you check that one out first. But I'm very excited to welcome him back here on the podcast today for episode 101. Noah, welcome back to the show. Thank you very much, Jacob. I'm glad to be back, man. I love your show. I listen to a lot of the podcasts you've been uploading. I love what you do, man. Appreciate that, man. And where I want to start, I kind of want to pick up just a little bit where we would have left off last time. So when we recorded last, it would have been, I believe it was just over a year ago now at this point. So it would have been late May, early June-ish, I believe, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And somewhere, somewhere around there. And so when we left off there, at that point in time, you were still in school, you were building courses, you were only half focusing on the marketing agency you were running at the time. But since then, you've dropped out of school and stopped doing your agency. I was wondering if you could explain the reason and decision making behind dropping out of school and stopped working on your agency. <laughs> so so I had I had a year left uh, in, in marketing and telephone school and management. But you know, I was going to my marketing courses and, and it just didn't make sense to me. Uh, explaining about how to advertise in newspapers and on billboards. And I'm sitting there in class looking at my phone saying, that's not how marketing is nowadays. I'm pretty sure, you know, they gave some pretty solid advice and, and knowledge, but it wasn't really applicable in what I wanted to do. And at the same time, I started realizing that I'm wasting a lot of time and I decided to quit. Um, as I did, I also decided to stop working on, on the digital marketing agency because I wanted to, I acquired all the skills I wanted to acquire. And at one point I felt myself getting comfortable. I wanted to try something new and now I got into sales. So, so that was the big pivot from school and marketing into, into more sales. And it's been, it's been maybe like six months now. Interesting. So when you say sales, like, what do you mean? Like, do you have a sales job or what does that look like? So it started off with me basically getting script. I wanted to learn sales as a skill, right? And I started getting scripts, um, sales scripts, and I would go through them. 
I want to learn the skill. And recently I started working. So about, about seven or eight months ago, I met an entrepreneur and, um, and I literally just sent him a message. I say, Hey, let's, let's meet up. He's, he's pretty successful, obviously. And I said, I'd work for you for free. If I can learn sales, if I can learn everything. Right. And that's where I started. Uh, I started working with him for free and learning and it started growing bit by bit. And now I've been working with him for six months. We're working on a company called entrepreneur that helps uh, entrepreneurs, salespeople and business people in developing their skill sets as well as working in sales with them. I'm curious then. So now that you've been doing this for six months, we look, look at the kind of the progression from starting with the scripts to where you are now. How helpful were those scripts and kind of the learning process of sales? Because from my understanding, a big component of sales is kind of the ability to form a connection with the person you're selling to. So how effective is it to practice with a script when once you get into a real life scenario, it's different? It's absolutely different. And, and the script itself is not enough. That's, that's the thing. We don't really, sometimes things happen and we don't really realize why they happened until they connect together. I did public speaking and I studied psychology. And then when I started doing sales, I realized that, guess what? My skills that I acquired in public speaking, in tonality and how to speak to people, I can use that in sales. Psychology, building report, neuro-linguistic programming, I can use that in sales. And before I knew it, I had this a little bit of, of a competitive edge in sales because I had experience in other fields. Right. And it started building up. The scripts were really helpful. But you see, if I didn't have that experience in public speaking, for example, I would sound so monotone with the script and it just wouldn't sound right, you know? And then talk to me a little bit more about the decision to to work for free, because a lot of you hear that advice, especially if you kind of in the Gary Vee ecosystem of moving with your parents or work for free. And you've done both. You moved in with your sister when you first started course creation. And now you took this role on initially for free. So talking about making that decision to work for free, despite being a successful entrepreneur yourself already. So Jacob, uh, you know, Udemy, Udemy is fully automated. Udemy, Skillshare, LearnFly, everything I have online is automated. And the reason I wanted to do that is because I didn't want to pick a job based on the salary. I, I want to pick a job based on what I can learn and what I can do. Money was never the priority. The priority is learning and the knowledge. Knowledge will stay with me forever, man. But, but the money, I can just go spend it in one day. The knowledge is there forever. And, and that switch in mentality, I wasn't always like that, right? That switch in mentality changed the game for me. When you stop focusing on money and you start focusing on value, and we talked a lot about value in the last episode, money will follow along, you know? That's true. And then so, and then so, but how, another aspect of that is just having the, the humility to make that decision because a lot of people, once they, if they were in your scenario where they're making a considerable amount of money, both from the courses and from running this digital marketing agency, taking, having the ability to step back like take two steps back to ultimately take three steps forward is not one a lot of people would be comfortable doing. So how were you comfortable enough to make that decision? I wasn't. I wasn't at first. <laughs> it, it, you know, it's not easy to do such a transition. But then I came across uh, a gentleman by the name of David Goggins. I don't know if you're familiar with mm -hmm. him. Yep. And, and his, his ideology uh, it just spoke to me differently. I was feeling so comfortable where I am. I'm doing my thing. I know what I'm doing. 
and I wanted to stay in my comfort zone. I wanted to stay comfortable. But then I realized that I'm not growing in my comfort zone. I got to step out of it. And, and that, that big leap that I wanted to take that I'm scared of is what I needed to do to grow. And I just said, you know what? I'm not going to let my mind control me. I said, look, I'm the boss. It's uncomfortable, but we're going to do it because we're going to grow. And I fell in love with feeling uncomfortable with discomfort. And, and it's, it's beautiful, man. No, hundred percent. I have like, I don't know if, if theory is the right word, but the way I look at comfort zones is you can step outside of your comfort zone, but ultimately once you step out of it, your comfort zone expands and envelops you again. So your comfort zone might be growing, but it ultimately catches up to you. So to continually not to not stagnate, to continue growing, you have to constantly be stepping out of your comfort zone, but it's a forever game because your comfort zone, as you step out of it, you become comfortable in that new environment. So your comfort zone expands, forcing you to step out of it again. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. That's, yeah, that's just how I look at comfort zones. But I'm curious then, why sales specifically? Because, man, you know, if you want to be successful in business, every single company has something it's selling. Like, business in general revolves around sales. It's a big aspect of it. And I did not have any experience. I never, I never had any experience in sales and it was something I was lacking. I knew that if I wanted to be a successful entrepreneur, I need to learn sales. There's no way out of it. And I did. And I still am, you know? Yeah. No, I mean, obviously like six months is a considerable amount of time, but to learn it will take a long time. But it's interesting kind of just hearing you speak, it's very, it reminds me a lot of a guest I had in episode 95. His name was Zach Honover and he's Yes Theory's manager. But after college, he ultimately took a sales job because that was a skill he wants to learn. And if you know Yes Theory, their whole thing is around seeking discomfort because that's when you grow. So it's just interesting to kind of see the parallels between these two conversations. But you mentioned with making the decision to take the free job in sales, to take those two steps back to ultimately take three forward. You had to, you dropped out of school and you stopped doing your agency and you said it was hard just to, to take the free job, but it must've been extra hard to stop doing something you built in the agency. Was that a difficult thing to do on top of taking a free job, but also pausing something you put so much time into building? Um, it, it wasn't, it wasn't because I wasn't trying to build the agency. When I started in marketing, I wasn't trying to build the agency. I was trying to learn the skill. The agency was a consequence of the skill, of the skill sets I acquired. And the skill sets are there and they're developing. I don't really look at it as a, as a loss um, because, as I said, man, the skill sets are there. They're developing. If right now I decided to go back into the digital marketing uh, industry, I know what to do. You know, I know how to pivot around. I know what to do. I know how to get my clients results. So. I had I had to do it. I had to do it, especially because I was comfortable, Jacob. I was feeling so comfortable doing what I'm doing. I know what I do. And then, well, well what else can I do? Like, how can I learn something new, this, this, and that? And you know, you're, you're running a digital marketing agency right now, and you know it's time-consuming. It's time-consuming. So, so if you want to do something else and, and you have such a big workload, you need to let it go in order for you to take something else. And, and that's what happened. Mm -hmm. 
And then what about this aspect of dropping out of school was the fact that last time we spoke, you said a big reason for you wanting to finish school, because you kind of had this mindset a little bit back then a year ago, but you said a big reason for you wanting to finish was for your parents. So what was the conversation like with your parents when you told them you were ultimately going to be dropping out of school? Well, <laughs> you know, you know, when I was uh, first, I spoke with my brother, um, I took his opinion on it. And, and he knew, he knew that I was, that I was becoming more and more successful in what I was doing online. And, and he said, you know, I think that's, I think that's the right decision to do. And with one year left, like you can literally go back to school at any point in time and finish your degree. And when I spoke to my parents, they also knew that my business online was consistently growing. So they looked at it and they were like, well, he has a point. You know, he has a point and they were and they were really happy about what I was doing. I did not expect the transition to go as smoothly as it did. Um, they were really supportive, actually. And and it just happened overnight, to be honest. It just happened overnight. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. And I want to kind of talk a little bit more. I want to dive into course creation, online courses, because as you said, you were so you're successful doing that online. And I really want to dive into that. So 117,000 students on Udemy alone. Do you ever take time to reflect on that number? <laughs> um, no, not, not anymore. Not anymore. I kind of, kind of got used to it. <laughs> kind of got used to it. Uh, but it's overwhelming. Uh, you get a lot of messages and, uh, and I can't keep up on Udemy, you know? So, um, so right now, right now I have, I have some people helping me on Udemy. To, to help manage things. And I love keeping connections. Like a lot of times I, I open Udemy just to see some messages and talk to people. Oftentimes some people, you know, they, they went through the course, but they still have some, some questions or something. I'd even go with them on Skype or on Zoom for free. And then we talk for like half an hour. And, uh, and literally, literally it's so uplifting, man. Uh, when when you help others, and I found that Udemy Udemy was was a really good platform for me to help people in the areas that I was good at, and and the number man the number whether it's you know a thousand or a hundred thousand, as long as I'm helping people, I'm adding value, it'll feel good no matter what. Mm -hmm. And so I'm curious from a platform perspective, why Udemy over a Skillshare or something like that. I, I am on Skillshare as well, uh, but started off at, on Udemy because literally I had two of my friends, uh, Jad and Rayan, and, and they were on Udemy. It's, it's a funny story because we met at the library at UOttawa and I told them about Udemy, all right? And I didn't see them for like five months, right? I was supposed to work on Udemy, but I didn't. I met them five months later. They're like, hey man, how's Udemy going? I'm like, oh, I didn't start yet. They're like, you should. So they uploaded a course once we talked about it and they were starting to make good money. They had a, many students on Udemy and I was like, damn, like I gave an advice and I didn't follow through with it. So, so that's when I started on Udemy. And then I started also discovering Skillshare, LearnFly, Grantford, different, different platforms, started just expanding there. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious from a Udemy versus Skillshare perspective, but correct me if I'm wrong, Udemy is pay by course versus Skillshare is a subscription, right? Uh, yes, but Udemy, they did uh, an update about a year ago and they uh, introduced Udemy for business. 
but it's still different. It's only for businesses that do subscription and then they have a similar system to Skillshare. So from a business, how does that affect you as a course creator then when it's purchased by course versus a subscription? Like how does that, how does you like, how does the money get distributed then at that point? Uh, you get royalties, which is, which is really good. Uh, the royalties, royalties, they, you know, each month is different, but realizing that you have some of the top companies in the world, Mercedes-Benz, Lyft, SurveyMonkey, all these companies, uh, their employees going through what you created is huge, you know? And that's why I opted it into the Udemy for Business. Mm -hmm. And so Udemy for Business, that's not like a live course of these companies, right? Like that, they just get a similar interface to a regular user, but for them, they're on a subscription or is there, is it a live component? Yeah. Yeah. No, no. It's uh, subscriptions. Got you. And so what about like, cause I was, I don't know if you've heard of David Perel or not. Have you? David Perel? Yeah. I don't, I don't think so. No. No, he's, he's just, he's the founder of an online course called um, right of passage, but instead of you doing it on Udemy or Skillshare, he created his own platform to deliver his course. And is that ever something that you're considering? Uh, yes, actually, uh, not in the near future, not in the near future. Uh, but I want to build a, a separate education platform, uh, basically kind of combination between Skillshare, Masterclass, and Udemy, but. To be honest, there's there's no plan yet. It's it's a vision. There's no plan. Uh, there's no goals yet. And definitely something I'll pursue in the future. Okay. How come it's a future goal and not one right now? Like clearly you have you have the impact with over 170,000 students. So how come it's something you're waiting on doing? Uh, time commitment. <laughs> That's valid. That sounds like a sounds like a big thing to build. But you also said that that it's pretty automated at this point, right? So is the built-in distribution through a Udemy helping bring in a lot of new students for you without you having to do much work? I don't do any work. Like um, I, get, I get about a minimum of 20 to 50 students a day without doing anything. Um, it's pretty automated, but I am working on it, as I said, like, like the two companies, so, so Entrepreneur, the sales job, and also a company called UCX. And those are enough you know i i literally don't have time to scratch my head at this point so uh so yeah man <laughs> <laughs> that's fair and you recently i don't know how recently you did this but i was look, going through kind of your profile on udemy and on skillshare and on udemy you've dropped all of your course prices down to 12.99 and put them on sale what's the reasoning behind that because i'm at a point where it's not about the money anymore uh, it's just a really adding value. I can't drop it below twelve ninety nine. If I could, I probably would. Um, there's a high volume of students uh, buying courses and they're getting value. So, uh, so I decided to drop the course. Udemy sometimes they do promotions. Uh, they put the price up down, uh, but usually yeah, I keep it around there. Interesting. So, so you're not recording or creating courses at all right now? No, not not at the moment. No. Interesting. Do you have plans to ever start doing that again or putting that together? Uh, yes, but I'm waiting for for my my sales skill sets to really fall into place, so I can start moving away from personal development and productivity more into teaching business, marketing, and sales. 
is there is there a reason for that switch or is that more so just a your personal interests are moving that direction so you'd rather create content and courses based mapping back to your own interests there's 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 a lot of there's a lot of reasons um getting into getting into a different industry reaching a different audience they do have some similarities the audiences but also a different audience and just expanding skill sets because you know when you teach some someone something if i teach you about uh, psychology for example I end up learning a bit more about it myself through the process, right? So, uh, so it's 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 kind of to expand at the same time to expand into new audiences and a new industry at the same time expand my knowledge and skill sets. And so, then, are you at all concerned with with student retention? Like, with you kind of taking this pause, is retaining students something you're worried about happening if them slowly kind of distancing themselves if you're not quite as active as you could be? Uh, yes, yes, and no. Yes and no. Uh, I know that I won't be as active, and probably some people won't appreciate that. But uh, but those people who are following me on a consistent basis, they know that this is not where it ended. That that there is there's a lot of better stuff coming up soon in the future, and they're waiting for that. You know. Mm-hmm. No, that's fair, and so. So last year when we when we spoke, you had thirty two thousand students. So at what point did you kind of make the switch and stop creating courses? And then so how much of that from thirty two to one hundred seventy thousand was that entirely brought in by Udemy on its own? Uh, no, uh, I did I did a lot of marketing. I did a lot of marketing until until I, the profile kind of became solid, and I started kind of releasing a lot of courses. I had this period of like three, four months again, where I was obsessed about Udemy and Skillshare literally all the time. And, and you know, when, when you put in 12 to 16 hours of work a day for three to four months on, on one or two things, you can go far and that's what happened. But it's been a while. It's been a while since I created a new course or since I've been uh, active on Udemy really. But you said that right now you do have a couple employees or team members that help you kind of manage just the inbound messages from Udemy right now. Uh, not just messages, like literally everything on everything on Udemy and Skillshare. Um, I made a kind of like a document that summarized my way of of dealing with Udemy, and I sent it to them, and um, and and they're doing a great job, man. They're doing a great job. It's good. I'm glad to hear that because I remember last time a year ago when we were talking on the podcast, you said you weren't quite a, a, a spot yet where you felt comfortable hiring someone to help with the courses. So when did you ultimately make that decision to bring people on? Um, as soon as as soon as the, as soon as I decided to drop the prices of of all the courses to twelve ninety nine, uh, it was it was the point where I was getting a big volume of students on Udemy that. I couldn't handle it by myself. I needed someone to step in and Udemy was making enough money for me to be able to say, hey, if you help me with this, this and that, you'll take an X amount of money, you know? And that was that was the pivot moment. That's interesting. So without getting into the like the financials or anything, did you notice an increase in revenue when you went down? Because some of your courses, correct me if I'm wrong, are $100, $200, $300. So when you dropped everything down to $12.99, despite that big drop, in the cost per course did you see an increase in total revenue yes surprisingly uh, uh, i thought i thought it was gonna drop a bit maybe or stabilize 
but it was the complete opposite when uh, when the prices dropped a lot more people were interested that's like i mean obviously why do you think that is is because more people are buying because it's a lower amount but why do you think it was such a dramatic increase in students with the price difference um i think it's because at first people didn't know me like if if somebody who doesn't know who i am stumbled upon my course they're like okay who is this guy right i'm not gonna pay 300 or 200 dollars for somebody that i don't know but if it's $12. $12. I'm like, okay, well, well, this seems interesting. Let me, let me, let me try it. And what I, what I noticed afterwards, because obviously I do a lot of email marketing um, right now, more than half of my revenue online comes from people who already bought stuff from me, not new people. Uh, since, since the price is $12.99, people found it a lot easier for them to take this leap. And once they did, they were like, oh, this is actually good. I want more. So I got a lot of people who buy like 10, 12 courses. I'm like, wow, you know, and, uh, and that's, that's how it started growing. That's interesting. That makes a lot of sense though, because of any of the, like of, if I've never taken an online course, but some of the ones that have caught my eye have all been people that I've heard of before. They've established a personal brand on social media and are using that as kind of their top of funnel to drive people to their course. And those are probably the only online courses I've ever considered taking where I know who that person is beforehand. So how now, how much time are you putting into personal brand building with, with being so busy doing other things? Um, I'm not, I'm not so focused on personal brand building. Uh, word of mouth is, is doing, is doing its thing. A lot of people who are, you know, uh, going through my content, they're, uh, they're telling other people about it and, and there's that, but I do, I do have a plan to build a personal brand. The only thing is I'm invested in, in so many different areas that if I want to start building my personal brand right now, like you can't build a personal brand around personal development, productivity, psychology, sales, entrepreneurship, business, you know? just a lot of aspects. I wanted to take the time to really find the area where, where, where I have the most passion, where, where I'm really just delivering the most value and then build my brand around there. And so, but you, you did here, actually, we'll come back to social media. I do want to talk about finding your passion. And for you specifically, you've been an entrepreneur for seven, eight years now. Yes. How, how, have, how are you finding what, have you found what you're passionate about or how are you going about trying to find it? Cause I feel like finding your passion is something a lot of people struggle with. And I know you've written a book about this, which is why I'm very curious to hear your answer. Yeah. Um, see at first back a year back when, when we met, I had this idea that each person has a passion and I came to realize that that's not the case. We have multiple passions. You can be passionate about multiple things. You can be more passionate about marketing than you are in sales, for example. But we do have different passions. It's not just one single thing. And and with that, I started asking myself, well, what am I really passionate about, right? And And especially for people who I spoke with who struggled to find their passion, something that I found extremely helpful is I would ask them, if let's say there are no limits in this world, you can achieve anything you want, what would your vision of the future be? Who would you be in 10, 15, 20, 30 years? 
And when I ask people this question, they would pause for a second and they start thinking. And they start telling the story. I want to be this. I want to do that. Da, 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 da. And I'm like, well, how can you get there? Right? And out of the vision, out of the vision, they were able to kind of figure out what their passion or passions are. And then they started working on it. Does that make sense? No, that does make sense. And that's, I like the way you ask that question because I often hear people say when they're trying to figure out their passion is if, if today was your last day on earth, what would you do? And that's your passion. But I just, I don't agree with that notion because if you had one day left to live, you would operate very differently yes. if versus if you had like 40, 50 years left. So the question how now the way I've kind of looked at it when I'm talking to people is if in 10 years or 15 years, whatever the time frame is, you know that whatever you're doing, you'll be, in 10 years, you'll have $15 million. If you could do anything within that 10 year time frame, what would you do? Because knowing that there's security at the end of this experimentation period, you're going to be willing to chase things that you don't think are practical. Absolutely. In, in real life. So I think I just like the way that you kind of frame that question. But then why do you think why do you think people struggle with this question? Even like laying it out in that scenario, some people, like if you could do anything, what would you do? And some people still don't know. Why do you think that is? Because they feel uncomfortable towards their passions. And, and they, they translate this discomfort into stress. And when they stress out, they like to move away from it because they think there's something wrong. That, that, that ties back to what we spoke about in the beginning. Uh, comfort and discomfort a lot of people man they're like i'm passionate about this i'm like why don't you pursue it and they start coming up with so many excuses uh at the bottom of all of this it's just their stress mechanism eating them from the inside and out and just making them so confused and as soon as somebody just says you know what i don't care if i'm feeling uncomfortable i'm gonna do it and they took the first step, they realized that there's nothing to be scared of. Mm -hmm. What about thinking you know your passion, but being wrong? Because you think it's your passion for the wrong reasons. Like for example, like a lot of people want to be YouTubers or they want to be vloggers on YouTube because they've seen people like a Casey Neistat or a Logan Paul do it. And they think that that's their passion because they want the end result, but not the process. How do you talk to someone that has that mindset where they think something is their passion, but they're just interested in the end result and not the process? Uh, I think this ties back to, to something you mentioned about if you, had, if you had one day to live, what would you do? And, and, and I asked this question to a few people and obviously everybody would say, oh, if I had one day to live, man, I want to spend some time with my parents, with my wife, with my girlfriend, with my friends, whatever. Like, okay, that makes sense. Obviously, there's something wrong with the question. It's not about that. It's it's if if you went through your day today and at night you realized that you're gonna close your eyes and you're never gonna open them again, would you be satisfied with how your day went with what you did today, kind of thing? And and that changed the perspective of it. Um, I know are you familiar with with Arnold Schwarzenegger, obviously, and 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 this guy, uh, this guy had not one passion, but several. He started off in bodybuilding. He mastered his craft. Then he moved into acting, mastered his craft. Then got a PhD, mastered his craft. Then governor, mastered his craft, real estate. You know, he had different passions. And when somebody says, you know, I'm not sure if this is my passion or not, the only way to know is to try. The only way to know is to try, you know? 
that's exactly it is the trying component. That's where I was slowly kind of getting to is you won't actually know until you try. You can think you know what you're going to be passionate about, but you don't actually know until you've actually done it. And I'm actually reading a book right now called 100 Mental Models. And there's a quote I actually wrote down from that book in my notes here. It's that passion is the opposite of reason. It is something that ha- that happens and can't be controlled. So people can't just like sit and think about what they want their passion to be. They actually have to go out and experience it and the passion will find them. You can't just think and move towards exactly what you think your passion is going to be, your passion will actually find you. And I think that that trying component is so important. But one thing that people are afraid of with trying a bunch of different things is failure. People don't want to fail. But I have a quote here from you now written down. I believe it was from our last podcast. I could be mistaken. It could be from the other podcast you're on. I believe it was called Breaking Culture or something like that. I can't, the name's escaping me right now. But You said, I prefer to do something and fail at it than not do it at all. How do you become comfortable with failure? You become comfortable with failure by failing. As simple as it gets, you get comfortable with something through repetition, through repetition. And that's uh, sales, especially if if you're cold calling people. If you're cold calling people, you know, you know, in one hour, how many times you're going to fail, how many times you're going to get rejected. You're going to get a thick skin in two weeks. You're going to get so comfortable with failure and with rejection. Why? Because you put yourself in a situation where you said to yourself, I'm here to experience failure, to experience discomfort. Before you know it, you're comfortable being uncomfortable. And it's, it's amazing. I relate to that. I did a, my first year of college, I did one of those student businesses where it's window cleaning, but you have to go sell window cleaning in the middle of February in Canada. And that's not a very easy thing to sell. So I heard no a lot in that during that time. But what about before, before sales? Like some people aren't in sales, but for you, like I mentioned, you've been an entrepreneur for seven, seven, eight years at this point. And are there any failures that you're comfortable sharing and what you learn from them? Because I think failure is important, but having a key takeaway and a learning is equally, if not more important when you do fail. So is there a failure you're comfortable sharing? Um, cold calling is, is one thing I started with. And I can tell you, I had days where I would call 250 people and literally get rejected 250 times. Uh, sometimes you have people, you know, uh, talking to you in appropriate ways. That was, um, if I, if I really want to talk about like the biggest exposure to failure I had sales, sales, failure over failure, but, but not just that, man, if I like, like, you know, we, we talked about, uh, some things that I did and I was successful at maybe 10, 12 things, uh, but on the other hand, there's maybe 12,000 things I tried and failed at. I tried so many things, man. Like in, in the past 10 years, I jumped around so much from insurance. I even, I was a paramedic at one point. I was trying to be a paramedic for like six months. And then I switched public speaking, that writing, then everything, man. I'm just trying, trying and fail, try and fail, try and fail. But now, but now every time I fail, man, it's not really failure anymore. You know, I don't share failures anymore. I share challenges. It's a challenge. It's a challenge. 
Mm-hmm. And what about then how do you deal with the judgment of doing that? Constantly changing what you're doing. People can't keep up. They're always wondering what is Noah doing? Like, how do you handle the judgment of other people when you're making all these changes? I don't handle it. I don't handle it. I don't take it into account. I don't care about it. I don't listen to it at all. It's it's just noise. It's disturbance. I don't listen to it at all. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And so you mentioned how when you first, your first sales was with you, it was a multimillionaire mentor, correct? That is correct. That is correct. So what are some things you learned beyond sales from that mentor? Um, having a routine, having a routine was, was one of the main things I learned from him. Uh, you know, at first, especially because I'm working online, I can work from anywhere, anytime. I can work at two in the morning or at six in the morning or at 10 at night, doesn't matter. There, was, there wasn't really a routine there. And then I started developing one and I noticed energy levels were different. Everything was different. And another thing is gratitude. Gratitude. Uh, you, you, you know, when you pause for a second and think about a person who's worth 20, 30, $40 million, taking the time every day, every morning for 10 minutes to sit down, close their eyes and think about everything they're grateful for. You're like, there's something there. There's something there. And, um, and the last thing I learned from him also was the importance of knowledge. Um, I, I, was, I was seeking knowledge. And, and like, if I want to tell you all the things that I learned from him, I can probably write like a 500-page book because it's a lot of information. But nothing is more valuable. Nothing is more valuable than knowledge, man. Really. I know that a lot of people, they kind of troll around Ty Lopez, knowledge and books and whatnot. And, and, and they're right because his way was kind of was, was a bit off. But knowledge, man, knowledge, knowledge all the way. And then how do you fall in love with learning? Because I feel like so many people, they have, a, they have a weird relationship with knowledge and learning just based off of their relationship with school. But gaining knowledge and learning is, can be separate from school. So you said you kind of had that switch of wanting to just acquire knowledge. How do you make that switch? How do you fall in love with that? By practicing. Because learning doesn't happen in the classroom. It doesn't happen in textbooks. You want to be a doctor, you're going to spend seven, eight years in school. But guess what? You're going to learn when you get to the hospital and you start dealing with patients. You want to be an engineer, you're going to spend five years in school, but you're not actually going to learn until you get on the field and start doing your thing. Same thing goes for business. Same thing goes for everything. The real learning process happens when you practice, when you put yourself out there and you do what you have to do. This is how you really learn. Mm-hmm. And can you, you also mentioned too, one of the other things your mentor taught you was, was the importance of a routine. Can you share what yours looks like now? Like how you've regimented your day where, where you take breaks and everything like that? Like, what does that look like for you right now? Right now I'm switching. I got something called the high performance planner, uh, made by a brand Bouchard. And it's, it's a really effective planner and it includes a morning routine. So I'm setting up actually a new routine uh, this Monday. So tomorrow. And the reason why is because I got comfortable with my old routine and, and I felt myself getting comfortable. So I wanted to seek the discomfort. Um, so now I'm going to tell you about the, the routine that I was following beforehand. Basically, I would wake up around 5.36. I do stretching. There's something I learned on YouTube is that when you first wake up in the morning, you need to wake up your body, 
either by workout or stretching, whatever, and you need to wake up your mind by meditating or by any kind of mindfulness or cold showers. So usually I'd wake up, stretch or quick workout and then a cold shower. And then I start my day. I know a lot of people, they like to take three, four hours in the morning to read and meditate for half an hour and all that. I think uh, I'm more of a, I take an Elon Musk approach where, you know, wake up, do a couple things and then start with the work. And I literally keep working until as long as I can, nine, 10. Uh, but then I have a night routine where I like to read or I usually watch uh, videos on masterclass. I subscribe to the platform and it's amazing. I watch some videos, read, and then sleep, then repeat. There doesn't sound like there's a lot of a lot of room for resting or for breaks in there. Is that something you factor in when, when putting your day together? Um no, not really. I, I take a break when I when I feel that my body needs it. Um because because really, if I, if I put that I want to take a break every day, like from 2.30 to 3.30, but 2.30, I'm not tired, it doesn't really make sense for me to take a break. Mm-hmm. How, do you, how do you remain disciplined? Because I feel like that's a difficult thing for a lot of people. With having such a, a structured day where you're pretty much going, going, going from shortly after you wake up to shortly before you go to bed, how do you remain disciplined? Um, it takes time it takes time i'm not always disciplined like we all have we all have days where we just need a break right and you feel that you can't discipline yourself but initially how i started developing my discipline is by picking out everything that i didn't feel like i wanted to do and i would force myself to do it uh cold showers cold showers jacob it's the the first thing I ever tried and I still do and I would never stop because this would develop discipline. When you put your hand under the cold water, your brain and your body are saying, no, no, please, this is too cold. I don't want to go there. And you say to yourself, yes, you are. And you take a step and you're under that cold water and you feel it and you want to run and you're like, no, we're staying here. This develops discipline like crazy. Mm-hmm. No, cold showers is part of my morning routine as well. It's I love it. It's because one of the one of the best parts about having a cold shower in the morning is that's going to be one of, if not the hardest thing you're going to do today. So once you get through that cold shower, everything after it won't be as difficult that you experience throughout the day. Absolutely, absolutely. But then, what about how do you handle bad days? You said you're not disciplined every single day. Like you, I've had those days where you just get into a funk. You feel like you can't be productive. You're just not in the right mindset. What do you do in those days? Um, so I, I do something at morning at night called state management, where in the morning I would ask myself, how do I feel emotionally from zero to 10? And at night I do the same thing. When I notice, when I notice that there are three, four, five days in a row where I'm emotionally not feeling that great and mentally, and it's going up and down, more down, I wouldn't let myself get to the point where I'm having a bad day. I would kind of anticipate it. Does that make sense? So I would be very aware of my state. And when I notice myself shifting into a negative state leading to a bad day, because it's not a bad day. It's, we can't blame it on the day. It's us that, that are not feeling that great, right? Uh, you, can, you can have a bad day and get another person, make him experience that bad day, and he'd be so happy right? 
it's it's a question of perspective so when i do when i did that state management it took a while for me to to really figure it out and i have a friend of mine his name is mo and we talked about these things all the time uh we came across something called the opponent process theory uh developed in in 1987 by by a famous psychiatrist that talks about this you know the yin and the yang when you feel really good you're going to feel really bad afterwards uh the concept of the sunday hangover uh, is 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 huge because you know people the weekend is there they feel amazing and then on sunday a lot of people they just feel bad even if they didn't drink they have the sunday hangover because they're doing something on monday that they didn't like this is where state management steps in if on sunday i realize that you know I'm not feeling that great emotionally or mentally. I do something called the habit variation. So, so you said to me that, you know, you don't have a lot of habits. You don't have a lot of things you do because guess what? When you do something over and over again, you get used to it. If you listen to a song that pumps you up, all right, if you listen to it every single day, 10 times a day, when you listen to it again in 20 days, you're not going to feel the same emotional intensity you felt. What I, what I do is I keep those habit variations such as doing a very intense workout, some songs, some motivational videos. I keep them to those days where I'm feeling a bit down, but then their effect is so strong because my body and my mind are not used to them. And I literally just snap out of it. Interesting. So how do you go about key components of routines? And you mentioned the word there was habits. And I wanted to talk to you about the importance of habits, which is something we touched on a little bit in our last podcast. And I know you have a book, Habits of Success. And I recently had Phil Paquette on this podcast and we talked a lot about habits. And he said, he said something I wanted to kind of run by you and see your perspective on. And he said that when we talk about habits, a lot of people view them as a physical thing you do. But habits are also something we do mentally. Do you agree that habits start in the mind? Absolutely. Absolutely. And then how then, with that knowledge, how do we determine which habits we should create? It depends on how you feel. Um, because, because I can do a certain habit. I can, I can meditate in the morning, for example, and feel amazing. Another person can sit down and meditate for 10 minutes, but then feel so irritated. They just want to move. It really, it's, it's, a matter, it's a matter of personal choice. What you feel is good for you. And also, your habits need to be centered around what you are trying to accomplish in life. And this is big. And that's, that's one of the things that I was doing wrong for a long time. Because we think that there are some habits for success. You need to read. You need to meditate. You need to do this and that. But guess what? That's what, those are the habits that you need to be successful if you're trying to accomplish a certain thing. But if you want to be a singer, for example, you need to have a very different set of habits. If you want to be a wrestler, you have a very different set of habits. There, there aren't just some key habits that every single person should do. No. What are you trying to accomplish? That's the first question. And second, what are the habits that I need to do to accomplish what I want to do. And this is a powerful combination. What about the opposite of that? What about habits we shouldn't have? How do we break habits that are negatively affecting us? By replacing them with something a lot more positive. So you're saying, so instead of like, for example, I'll just use video games and reading as an example. Say I have a habit of playing video games, but I should be reading. Every time I get the urge to play video games, I should then pick up a book instead and start reading. Is that kind of an easy way to explain that concept? 
no no because 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 the human animal doesn't function this way we have we're impulsive we're impulsive sometimes we don't always have the willpower and discipline if you if you say like somebody's playing a lot of video games and they want to read instead i would say take your ps4 or xbox and toss it out give it to someone sell it because if it's there every time you're feeling a bit down guess what you're going to cave back in and you're going to go back to it and you're going to throw the books away instead of the Xbox or the PS4. Interesting. So it's just removing that habit from the equation altogether. Yeah, absolutely. Changing gears just a little bit to goal setting. What is your approach to setting goals? Um, my approach to setting goals doesn't start with goals. It starts with a vision. Um, you can't set a goal without knowing where the goal is leading to. So. I start off with by setting a vision of where I want to be, and then I reverse engineer it. I ask myself, okay, this is where I want to be in five years. Now, how do I get there? I need to accomplish this, 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 and that. All right, those are my goals. Now, what do I start with? And then what's next? And what's next? And what's next? Then I take each and every one of them separately. Uh, it's it's a complicated process that I follow through with, but it works like freaking magic. You reverse engineer your vision into goals. It's as simple as it gets. How, what do you, happens if there's like a change in either who you are or just the world and the environment? Or what if your goal needs to change? How often are you reevaluating that five-year plan? This is going to happen. This is going to happen. And usually every two months, I would do an assessment. So every two months, I'd review my vision, my progress, my goals and either pivot, adjust, or keep moving. Are you, do you study mental models ever? Um, not, not in detail, not in detail. Uh, I was curious about them at one point or another, but I didn't go through them in details, no. No, that's fair. I was just curious because like I mentioned earlier, I just started a book called 100 Mental Models and it's something I'm slowly learning more and more about. And I just, based on our conversation, I think it's something you would appreciate and something you would enjoy as well. Absolutely. Uh, what's what's the book called? Sorry, the book's called One Hundred Mental Models, and I'll send you the link after. I'm gonna try and find it's it's actually a, kind of like a course by this anonymous Twitter account that I follow. Oh um, wow! And he created a whole course around mental models. I think it was thirty dollars. It came with a couple. It came with a couple books for the course. These different cards and things, and it also came with like a a collection of like thirty other books included for free. Um, so there's a lot of value and I just, I just purchased it recently and I started reading it and I'm really enjoying the, uh, the book. So I just think it'd be something that you would be interested in. Um, I'll send you that link after when I, when I have a sec, but no, I was just curious based off our conversation of something you'd ever looked into, but this conversation, I think if a lot of people want to learn more from you specifically, they should go to your YouTube channel because Although you aren't doing it now, you were doing it pretty consistently at two different points around 10 months ago and a couple months ago was something you were, you're working pretty consistently at, which is awesome to see. Cause I remember on our last podcast, you said YouTube used something you wanted to do, but you wanted to make sure you kind of go all in at it. And then you did. And I'm curious as to why you stopped. Is it just again with a matter of prioritization and the amount of things you have going on in your life? It, it was it was a goal. So so I uploaded some videos and I was consistent with it because I had a goal, which is to use YouTube as a platform to uh, market some of my Udemy courses. And as soon as I uploaded all the videos I I needed to upload to use them to market my books or my courses, 
this is where the goal kind of ended. Like I achieved what I, what I wanted to achieve. I do intend to work on YouTube a lot more seriously in the future, but by then I would probably hire somebody to, um, to handle that for me because I'm not an expert when it comes to YouTube. And uh, if I really want to dive into this, I'd prefer to do it with an expert. You say you aren't an expert, but you had some pretty decent success. Like you, you had a bunch of videos that exceeded your subscriber count, 10,000 views, 15,000 views, 5,000 views, like you having some success early on. What are some of those early learnings you kind of gleaned as someone who yourself self-described as not an expert? What are some things you learned from your time on the platform? Um, you know, some, some of the main things I learned on the platform is that if you really, if you really go on YouTube to to add value to people, to give people information, to help people, no matter how bad the quality of the video is or how bad the audio quality is, when you give people something that's going to help them, they're going to appreciate it. They're going to like the video. They're going to watch your next video or they're going to subscribe. They're going to leave a comment. They're going to send you a message. Uh, YouTube, a lot of people focus on YouTube as, oh, I want to find what videos uh, don't have a lot of competition and then I'll, I'll work on those. But then, no, like you don't do that. Main thing on YouTube is to do what you're passionate about, to do what you want to do, despite how much competition there is. And uh, obviously, in, in in personal development, psychology, and all that productivity, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of competition, and a lot of big players, way, way, way bigger than me. I learned from them. I learned from them. Best thing to do on YouTube see what the successful YouTubers are doing and replicate. Don't, don't bash your head over trying to recreate the wheel. What's the balance of, so you were leveraging YouTube to promote your courses, but what's the balance of giving away too much information where taking the course is redundant versus not giving away enough information to entice someone to take the course? For me, for me, there isn't a thin line. Um, uh, I would share I would share a lot of information on YouTube that I also share on my courses. The only thing that's different about the courses is that there's a structure. Uh, there is all the information. Like uh, I think one of the one of the videos that I uploaded on YouTube that a lot of people liked uh, was uh, related to neurolinguistic programming and anchoring. And the thing is, somebody can go through this video and learn how anchoring works. But if somebody actually wants to learn different neurolinguistic programming methods, well then they can go to the course and the course comes with a book and all that. So it's a different kind of story. Does that make sense? No, that makes perfect sense. I was just curious as to what that balance was and kind of your approach to it. But, and then in terms of the other social platforms, you're not really devoting a ton of time to any of the other ones, right? Like you're kind of on a pause altogether right now. Yeah. Yeah. Have you ever spent time on Twitter? I feel like Twitter is a platform that you would excel at. Um, <laughs> I did, but the only thing is that there are so many social media platforms, TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, so many, and it's hard to find. I know you're very active on LinkedIn. Um, it's hard to keep a balance between all the platforms I find sometimes. No, absolutely. I just think one thing I've been learning, I've been just taking a look at all the social platforms kind of from a high level. And one way that it was explained to me is Instagram, you gain followers for looking good versus Twitter, you gain followers for, for being smart and having good thoughts. And that's where I was like, maybe I should, 
I should flip over to Twitter just because I feel like it, you can provide value on Instagram. It's totally possible, but I think Twitter is just an interesting community. I think with the, especially with the kind of content that you've built your courses around, you could just glean insights from that and tweet those out and build an audience on Twitter. So I was just curious if it's a platform you ever spent a lot of time on, but with, with, with there being so many different platforms, when you finally do make that return, what's the platform you're going to focus on the most? Is it going to be YouTube? YouTube, YouTube, absolutely. And what is why YouTube? Is it because you can provide more value in a long form context on that platform? What is it about it? It's it's just because because throughout the years, all the skills that I acquired were centered around speaking and communication. Uh, even though I wrote a lot, blogs, books, and all that, but I feel a lot more comfortable and people people understand my message a lot clearer when I when I communicate with them. So that's why videos, uh, YouTube, or potentially maybe Instagram as well, uh, probably this is what I would go for. Mm-hmm. There's a couple a couple themes here throughout just this conversation, our previous one, that I want to ask your opinion on. Or one of them being is so. Last time I asked you what is one of the most important things everyone needs to know, and you just said one word, and that one word was execution. A lot of people have ideas, but not a lot of people start them. Versus you, I feel like you have a lot of ideas, but you're very particular and focused about what you actually start. And when you do have an idea you want to follow through on, you do 100% and you go all in and execute on it. How do you do that? How do you start? Uh, <laughs> you know, I used to procrastinate a lot. I used to procrastinate a lot. And, and what happens with most people is not that they don't, that they don't want to do it. They want to do it. They just want to procrastinate. And they say, you know what? I'll just do it in a year. But, and that's valid. That's valid. But why do you want to do it in a year? No. When I started asking myself this, I wanted to work on something. And then in my mind, I had thoughts like, oh, it's fine. Let's just do this. Uh, you know, let's start on Monday. Let's do this next year. Let's do this, you know, in the future. And I'm like, wait, but why? Why, 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 start on, why not start now? And then my mind was like, uh, I don't know. <laughs> you know, and I was like, okay, well, that means we're starting right now. And it's, it's a question of awareness. Execution is worship because not a lot of people execute. Not a lot of people execute. You wanted to start a digital marketing agency, you executed. Now you got several clients you're executing, but you, because you didn't procrastinate on it, you had this idea before. That's true. One, one area I wanted to ask you about in terms of having an idea and kind of pushing it off and wanting to do it was actually with your brother. And that was with skydiving. He kind of, he'd wanted to for a while, but he kept kind of pushing it off. And then ultimately you just decided one day you were going to go skydiving and booked it for two days later. And your brother ended up joining you on that adventure. What are some lessons? you learned from skydiving i've never skydived i've never done it myself i don't know if i could physically if i would do that but what are some things that are going through your head as you're just free falling in the sky once you finally touch down like what are some lessons from that experience that that we are powerful beyond measure we are powerful beyond measure and you will not know how powerful you are and and what your true potential is until you tap into it until you tap into how does how does skydiving teach you that? Because I would almost expect like the opposite answer where you realize that if your parachute doesn't open, this it's over, which would mean, which would almost cause the opposite reaction for me. So w- what about skydiving made you take that away? Skydiving, obviously, it, I'm not going to be like, 
I was so comfortable, man. And it was a walk in the park. It wasn't. It wasn't. I was shitting my pants sitting in the plane. When the door, when, when, when the instructor opened the door, I was like, I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this, you know? But at the same time, all of this discomfort building up, you're thinking deep down, I'm thinking I might, I might die. Who knows what might happen? And then you realize that that was one of the most blissful experiences you've ever been through. You realize that when you put yourself into so much pain and discomfort, on the other end of it is success, is happiness, is euphoria, is something that only, only a handful of people will get to experience. Oh, that's interesting. It's something that's like, obviously, like if I were to have a bucket list, it'd be on there. And I'm just, it just seems like such a daunting thing to do. But you, if you, you, if you ever want to go, I'd go with you. I appreciate that. <laughs> I appreciate that. That means a lot. But like back to the beginning of that story where you just had the idea, you decide you're going to do it. And then you just went all in on skydiving. And that's another, that's another theme that I've kind of just pulled throughout this both having you on the podcast, listening to your videos, be listening to other podcasts you've been on, you have an ability to go all in. You kind of center your focus on whatever whatever your target is. You devote your energy towards that goal. Versus last week, the guest I had on, technically it's not released yet at the time of recording this, but the guest I had last week was the opposite. He'd rather have like 38 balls in the air and drop five, but still have the rest of them juggling versus you're the opposite. I don't think there's a right or a wrong way to do that, to operate, but I'm curious as to why you focus 100% of your energy at the task in front of you instead of pursuing multiple interests at the same time. Uh, because, because Jacob, I think, you know, I, when I got to realize that I have several passions in life and, and I read the biography of Arnold Schwarzenegger, things connected together. Uh, if you have several passions in life, but at the same time, you don't just want to do the passion or, or, or practice it. You want to be one of the best people at it. You have to put your focus all in on one thing or, or maybe, maybe two things max, right? If you really want to be good at something, you need to go all in. You need to focus on that thing. I wouldn't, I wouldn't have had 100,000 students plus on Udemy if I didn't spend eight months to two years. 12 to 16 hour days where I'm just working on Udemy. If I was working on Udemy, Skillshare, learn all those platforms at the same time, I would have been mediocre on all of them. Mm -hmm. And then, so if you're, if you're going all in, in theory, you're putting all your eggs in one basket. Now, doesn't it feel like this is an experience you've had to go through too often? What, what happens if you're going all in at something? At what point do you admit to yourself it's not working? Like clearly courses worked for you, but how long would you have gone through creating courses with it not to be, we not seeing a lot of students come in for you to finally make that decision to stop? I don't think, I don't think that, that anybody doing something that you can get to a point where, where you realize that this is not going to work out. Everything can work out, but it's not that it didn't work out because it's not going to work out. It's just you did something wrong. When something doesn't work out, I don't say to myself, oh, it's not going to work. I say to myself, why didn't it work? What did I do wrong? What did I do wrong? Right? But when you do that, when you really think about it, whatever we want to achieve as human beings, that's why I was saying that we're powerful. We're powerful beyond measure. Is because 
you and me and anybody listening to this right now, we can achieve anything we want to do. We know that. We know that. We can achieve everything we want to do. We stop at what if. We stop at it didn't work. Well, why didn't it work? Why didn't it work? Okay, it didn't work because X, Y, Z. All right, how can I solve X, Y, Z? And then you do. And before you know it, it worked out. It comes down to, I guess, accountability and ownership at the end of the day. Absolutely. Interesting. So what's, what's next for you, man? What do you have coming up? Coming up, man, uh, right now, as I said, um, sales is, is one big focus of mine. Uh, but at the same time, I'm getting into the music industry. Um, and music is something I've been passionate about for a long time. And it's something uh, I've, been, I've been developing my skills for the past while in my free time. And it's something I intend to get into. When you say get into the industry, do you mean start producing music yourself or get into it from a business perspective? Uh, both. Both. That's exciting. Do you have a kind of a general timeline of when you think that'll happen? Uh, that, will be, that will be the new year resolution for next year. If, uh, if, if 2020 isn't, isn't like the final episode where everything goes, <laughs> where everything goes wrong, you know? Yeah. What is your, actually, now that you say that, I'm curious, what's your relationship with new year's resolution? Some people are all for them. Some people are against them and say, you shouldn't wait for a date on the calendar to start pursuing your goals. What's kind of your relationship with resolutions? I usually just set one resolution, but my resolution is big. Like I wouldn't be like, my resolution is not going to be, I want to start going to the gym or or I want to start meditating. No, your resolution should be one goal that you work on for the entire year. And if by the end of the year, you don't like it, drop it. Next year, start something new. Well, guess what? You know, if, if you're going to live, uh, if you're 20 and you're going to live hopefully till you're 70, 80, uh, you have about 50 to 60 years where you can try 50 or 60 different things. Don't tell me you won't be able to find what you're passionate about and excel at it. Uh, if you try something every single year, you know? Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. And what about, what about long-term goals? Is, are you comfortable sharing any of kind of what your long-term goals are? Um, long-term goals would be more, more of a vision. Um, and, and the vision, uh, you know, one, one thing that I have, and I'm not sure if, if this might change in the future, um, what Tony Robbins does is something I'm extremely passionate about. Um, and I've been studying his work for the longest time. And this is one of my big goals to have a, to have a seminar. Uh, I mentioned my friend Mo beforehand, and, and he's, uh, he's one of the people who, are, who has shared the same vision. And that's, that's one of the big things I'd want to achieve, have a seminar to, to help out people similar to what Tony is doing. Uh, overall, uh, my vision, and I found that switch in vision helped a lot. I started focusing on not what I want to have. It's not that I want to have a Lamborghini and a mansion. I started putting a vision on what I want to produce, what kind of change I want to produce in the world. Uh, how many people can I help uh, building schools, uh, planting trees? What good can I do in this world? You know, And, and when I did that in my vision, uh, some, some of my long-term goals, uh, built some schools, uh, plant trees and and of course like i have specific numbers on, on the mind map i built i found that this approach was really helpful as well interesting and before before i let you go 
I want to do the same standard set of questions I do at the end of every interview. These would have been, most of these were probably the same as last year. So I'm curious to see how the answers stay the same versus change compared to just over a year ago. And so the first question being, you're going to, you're going to dinner. You can take anybody dead or alive. You take three people. Who do you take to dinner? David Goggins, Jordan Peterson, and uh, Bishop T.D. Jakes. What is some of the best advice you've ever gotten? Um, some of the best advice I've ever gotten. Uh, I don't know how to, like, it's not, it's not going to be worded. It's not going to be worded the way I wanted it to be worded, but fall in love with discomfort. Fall in love with discomfort. Mm. A lot of people ask the question, if you could go back in time and give your 18 year old self advice, what would you say? But I want to flip that question on its head. What do you think Noah in 15 years would advice, like what advice or what would he say to you if, if 15, if you, Noah in 15 years traveled back in time to talk to you right now? What would I say to myself if I travel back? No, no. So say, for example, Noah in 15 years travels back in time to see Noah right now. What do you think yourself in 15 years would tell you at this moment? Mm, to keep doing what I'm doing, honestly. <laughs> um, you know, I, I, I wouldn't know. I wouldn't know. Maybe I'm not wise enough to figure out this answer that, that myself in 15 years will know. For now, I know that, that I'd say to myself, keep doing what you're doing. Keep pushing, keep pushing, keep pushing. I love that. What is one thing about you people would not expect? Um, that, that I'm passionate about music, actually, because, uh, because, you know, not a lot of people, entrepreneurs and, and business owners and all that who, who end up, uh, you know, uh, in the music industry. Some do. Some do, but like most people that I talk to and I'm like, oh, like I'm really passionate about music. This isn't that. They're like, oh, I didn't see that coming. If I'm being honest, I didn't see that coming either. So that's a good oh, answer I, to I, that I, question. I <laughs> what is one thing that's so important everybody needs to know? That what your brain is telling you is not always the truth. You need to be aware of the truth. You need to be aware of the truth. How can you be aware if it's your own brain telling you? Um, question it. Question it. When you start question it, questioning it and your brain can't answer it, when you, uh, going back to the example of procrastination, when you want to procrastinate on something and you ask yourself, why do you want to procrastinate on that? And your brain is like, uh, I don't know. That's your brain lying to you. That's your brain lying. To you. you need to be aware of that because... Otherwise, otherwise, you're not operating at your full potential, not even near half your full potential. I like that. The final question. So I like to flip the script a little bit. So instead of me asking the question, it's you asking the question, but you're not asking me the question. Imagine you have this crystal ball and you can ask this crystal ball any question and you'll get the 100% honest answer. What is one question you'd want to know the answer to? Um, honestly, whether or not there is another planet similar to earth that has life on it uh space be related to space like that but i want to thank you so much for taking time to come back on the podcast i want to give you the floor where can the people find you plug anything and everything you got right now uh my website noamerby.com instagram literally just just uh type me on google and you'll be able to find any platform you want to contact me on.
Awesome. Well, I'll make sure everything's linked in the show notes down below. And I want to thank you once again for taking the time to be on this podcast. I want to thank everybody for listening. Whether you've listened the entire way through, you only listen to bits and pieces. I really appreciate you taking the time to check this out. Everyone do me a big favor. Go and follow Noah. Go and check out his website. Pick up a copy of one of his books. I'll make sure everything's linked in the show notes down below. And if you'd like to follow me, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at, at the Jacob Kelly. Feel free to come and say hello. My DMs are always open. If you'd like to follow the podcast, you can find us on Instagram at, at my social life podcast or YouTube by searching up my social life. As always, today's podcast is powered by TrueFan. Thank you once again for listening, everybody. We'll talk soon.